Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Downstairs History. We've got Tim Cook on the podcast today. I'm very pleased to say he's one of Canada's foremost historians of the First and Second World War. He's written a dozen books including a three-volume work on Canada in the First World War. He's now smashed out the last of his multi-volume history of Canada in the Second World War. He and I had a chat about why Canada is overlooked as an ally, its contribution in the war, its massive navy by the end of the war, its army that liberated great chunks of, of Western Europe, uh, 1944 to 45. It tends to be forgotten. And actually why it's overlooked in Canada itself, as a Canadian citizen. Uh, this is a great conversation to have. If you want to listen to all the back episodes of this podcast or watch History Hit TV as we move into a very busy week next week with the 400th anniversary of Mayflower and the 80th anniversary of Battle of Britain, we've got lots of new programmes dropping, uh, then please head over to History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. Uh, only better, really, in many ways. And if you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you'll get a month for free and then your second month is £1, euro or dollar. So please go and check that out. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy Tim Cook. Tim, great to, great to have you on your podcast. It's been, it's been too long. We met a long time ago in the flesh, but it's great to have you on the podcast now. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to, great to reconnect with you. I think it was about 10 years ago in Canada, and, and you had your book and I had mine, and those were good times. They were good times, man. And, and you, since then, have established yourself as, as Canada's premier um, historian of the Second World War, well, of 20th century military history, I'd say. Um, what's the latest project? Well, the new book is called The Fight for History, and it's, um, it's the third volume in my, my series on the Second World War, Canada in the Second World War. And you might remember, 10 years ago, I had just I had a two-volume on the Great War that came out back-to-back. -back, and I said, never again, Dan. I'm not going to ever write books back-to-back. -back. Well, I did that with the Second World War. And now I've added a third volume. And, um, and the title is important, The Fight for History. It's about the memory of the Second World War in Canada. It's about the very strange way that Canada talked about the war. And as I argue in the book, largely um, left the war uncelebrated. And that's a strange thing. Canada in the Second World War had 1.1 million Canadians in uniform. That's from a country of 11 million, fought around the globe, uh, on the seas, uh, on land campaigns in the air, massive production on the home front, standing by Britain uh, from the first week in the war. And yet, this is a war that uh, was rapidly left behind in 1945. It's, you know, you, you and I have talked about this in the past, but it's it's so crazy. Whenever anyone, you'll be glad to know, Tim, I'm holding up the line here. When anyone ever says Britain stood alone, I'm like, the largest country in North America, in the Americas, 
was on Britain's side from like the first week till the last day of the Second World War. Like, let's not yeah. let's not forget that. Um, and actually, I had a chat with someone the other day, and I pointed out, you know, I was talking about Juno Beach, Canadian Beach, and they're like, I don't know, the Canadians had a beach on Delia. I mean, the, you know, the, the 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 impact that the Canadians had in the Second World War is extraordinary. I mean, just give us a sense of how big the Navy got to, for example, by the end of the Second World War. Before the war, Canada, uh, deeply affected by the Depression, poor, um, not willing to, to really build up its military. And during the course of the war, uh, goes from a navy almost non-existent to 100,000 sailors, over 400 warships. Um, I, I like to tell Canadians this, um, that our contributions in the bow of the Atlantic, absolutely crucial for keeping Britain in the war with food and munitions. By the midpoint of the war, about half of the convoys are are being shepherded across by Royal Canadian uh, Navy warships. And of course, there's the Merchant Navy as well. And these are some of the stories you mentioned there, Juno Beach and the Canadians landing with the British and the Americans and, and really a, a key event, as we know, a turning point in the war in the Western Europe. And yet Canadians have done a poor job in telling these stories. Uh, as I talk about in the book, The Fight for History, after an initial burst of a few journalistic histories, which were bestsellers, Canada moved forward into a period of prosperity. We didn't build the same memorials to the Second World War generation like we did to the Great War. We didn't write the same books. We didn't have the same novels and plays. And we really fell down on television and film. And we know a film like The Longest Day or Saving Private Ryan can have a tremendous impact on the, the social memory around a conflict. And here I, I really argue that this is, for the most part, about 50 years, a self-inflicted wound by Canadians who ignored their own history, or when they focused on it, they focused on defeat and disgrace. My grandpa was uh, on a Royal Canadian Navy. He was one of those uh, men escorting the convoys across the Atlantic back and forward on a Royal Canadian Navy ship. And his personal um, journey was that he, he, didn't, he never put his medals on again, never put a uniform on again or anything, a blazer. And he, he left it and moved on with his life. Why do you think there was something peculiarly Canadian about that? Yeah, it's something I've been trying to get at. I think like you, I've always enjoyed speaking to veterans of any war, of any conflict. The eyewitnesses to history can tell us so much and so much of that hidden history that that doesn't come out in the official records. I love to spend time in the archives and looking through that material. But when I speak to veterans, they can tell me so much. And I've asked that story did you feel like a veteran? You know, you're a 25-year-old guy. You'd spent two years, say, in the bow of the Atlantic. What was it like to come home? And of course, they were young people. They were moving forward. In Canada, we enjoyed a great period of prosperity that directly comes out of the Second World War. We went into the Second World War, as I mentioned, as a poor country, suffering from the Depression, the wartime industry and production, putting a million, 1.1 million Canadians in uniform. On the other side of this, Canada emerges as a very different nation. And we were moving forward, not looking backwards. And yet, unlike other countries, I think of Britain, I think of the United States, that talked about their stories, that presented their history, that uh, engaged in cultural products, Canada didn't do that. So I was trying to figure out why was that? Because it's not that Canadians haven't done that, for instance, for the Great War. The Great War is really a defining moment in Canadian history. The Battle of Vimy Ridge has sometimes been called the birth of the nation. I wrote a book on that. It's too much to say that, but really the, the Great War and Canada's contribution propels us forward. 
And yet we didn't see the Second World War as the birth of a different nation, even though it was. And some of that are, is the veterans and the stories we told. I think some of it, just to come back to your question, is we have a greater sense now, I think, of post-traumatic stress disorder and the invisible injuries of war and how war imprints itself on people. And I've talked to veterans and many of them, and I, and I, I write them into the book, um, they told me they had a hard time talking about the war. They didn't have the words and the grammar, and the people at home also didn't know how to ask those questions. And the argument I make is that it took about 40 to 50 years before those veterans began to speak en masse about their experiences. I'm just wondering, talking to you now, Tim, whether there's something Canadian, you know, Britain, uh, to a certain extent China, and obviously the USA, that it was part of their political, their strategic conversation in the war. You know, they... Either Britain was trying to stave off imperial decline or attempt to kind of reassert itself using its wartime experience on the global stage. The US used its wartime hegemony to sort of build on and, and go on to dominate the rest of the 20th century. I guess Canadian policymakers, Canadian leaders, Canadian cultural figures, they didn't have any, there was no kind of geopolitical axe to grind for Canada, right? So I guess things just turned more domestic. Like how do we how do we boost, you know, quality of life and infrastructure and healthcare? Yeah. Whereas the Brits, the American, these politicians, the war, they, they kept using it to prove points and do things. Yeah, and I talk about that in the book, the way that nations use wars as hinge points in their history to tell their stories, to create foundational myths. If we think of the Americans, as you say, and the, the, the hegemonic power that they embrace through the war, it's the good war, it's the war they won. Uh, it's a war that changed the modern world. If you think of the Soviet Union, or now Russia, of course, the Great Patriotic War resonates in a very powerful way. Uh, in Britain, I think, uh, very much this idea of the underdog, the lone wolf standing against um, the Nazis. And as you mentioned on the front end, with without the colonies and the dominions behind them, largely written out of the story. So nations use these. I, I think of Australia and Gallipoli in the First World War, and Canada and Vimy in the First World War. So you're right, there wasn't a compelling story. And on top of that, I argue in the book that the politicians of the day were largely afraid of this history. History has always been divisive. We see that today in the tearing down of monuments and the challenging of accepted stories and the embracing of new stories. This, this is a good thing. History is always changing. The meaning changes. For the Second World War in Canada, strangely, there was a desire to leave it behind. It was divisive in some ways, I think in two prominent ways. With French Canada, it wasn't the same conscription crisis like in the Great War. Uh, and during the Second World War as well, we had the forced relocation of Japanese Canadians, although that was not a powerful story that resonated in, in the late 1940s, and it wouldn't come back around until the late 1970s. And yet I think you're right. The core point of it is that there wasn't a compelling story that was made to use the war to go forward. And that doesn't happen until much later. And the, the book's subtitle is called 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. And the remaking part, I would argue, is about over the last 25 years, where Canadians have finally begun to pay more attention. Well, it's so fascinating, and, and you'll have had this experience. You go to parts of Holland, and uh, particularly on a, on a big anniversary year, and there's just Canadian flags everywhere. Uh, and, you're, and as a Canadian, which I, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm also a Canadian passport holder, I don't sound like it, but my mum was Canadian. Um, and as a Canadian, your heart is just fit to burst. You can't believe this. You know, the, 
there's and, and that's obviously because the Canadians played the, the lead part in the liberation of, of those parts of Holland. But it feels like the, the Dutch remember the Canadian contribution more than the Canadians. I think you're right. Um, the liberation story still resonates to this day in the Netherlands. Uh, tremendous links between the two countries. And I write about this in the dark period in, in the book, in the 60s and 70s. And if we think of the anti-war reaction uh, largely to Vietnam and the uh, rise of youth culture. In Canada, Remembrance Day was almost cancelled. There's debates in 1968 and 69 uh, in major newspapers and in the House of Commons where they're saying no one is coming out anymore. Nobody cares. And the Royal Canadian Legion fought very hard against that. Other veterans, historically minded Canadians, and yet it simply did not resonate. And when Canadians thought of war, they thought of peacekeepers. This is another powerful symbol in Canada, one that I'm personally proud of, and yet the peacekeeper symbol is a very easy symbol that ignores the fact that Canada fought in six wars in the 20th century, the South African War, the Great War, Second World War, Korean War, the Cold War, I suppose, uh, the Gulf War in 1990, the Kosovo Campaign, uh, uh, 10, 11, 12, 14 years in Afghanistan, the 19th and 18th century, as you have written about, of course, deeply Canada's destiny shaped by war. And yet we changed the narrative and we embraced the idea of peacekeepers, partially to distinguish ourselves from the Americans. And yet other countries remembered. And the, the key point here is that when the veterans returned to the Netherlands in 1995, that's a key event, the 50th anniversary marked widely around the world, uh, Canadians woke up to found, find that thousands upon thousands of French and Dutch were coming out to greet the liberators. And that's a really, that's a significant change point where Canadians realized we had hundreds of thousands of veterans who we had paid very little attention to. And here they were, these aged liberators greeted once again by those who they had brought freedom to in 1945. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, it's so difficult, isn't it, being so close to that lunar pool of, of American popular culture and how I bet many young Canadians think about would, would think about Hollywood movies featuring America, but before their own stories would, would think about the kind of, um, you know, the U.S. stories. It's what I write about in the book. And, you know, you've been better than, than almost anyone at, at engaging people with history in a public history environment. I work at the Canadian War Museum. I'm very proud to be there. We have a tremendous impact, about 500,000 visitors a year. I see the value of material culture and film and photographs in getting across stories. And yet, as you, as you say quite correctly, Canada has never told its story on film very well. We have a national film board. We have a CBC, the equivalent to the BBC. And yet these agencies have almost never embarked upon this epic story. And I think it is an epic story. I'm not arguing that we need to create heroic, chest-thumping history. But nor should we run away from our history. And nor should we allow others to tell our history for us. I think that's important. And when I used to teach at, at university... Everyone had seen Saving Private Ryan. Everyone had seen Band of Brothers. Uh, if we go back further, I imagine most people of an older generation saw The Longest Day. And I write about those films in, in the book, The Fight for History, because Canada was involved there. If we think of D-Day and the Juno landings and the Royal Canadian Navy involved in Operation Neptune and the Air Force, uh, both bombers and fighters above the battlefield. And yet they're largely written out of those stories. And... Uh, I'm not naive. I don't think that Canada can turn around and produce a Steven Spielberg or Tom Hanks to create a $200 million film. And yet we haven't tried very hard. That's part of the argument. And there were parts in this book where I was angry. I was angry that we had neglected the history. I was angry that we'd neglected our veterans. I was angry that we hadn't told our stories and we'd allowed others to tell stories. I uncovered this incredible account. A veteran told me this about 15 years ago. He said, Tim, you know, when we came back, we tried to build a monument in Ottawa, where I live, the capital in Canada. And I'd never heard of that. And I lived in Ottawa all my life. And I began to research in the archives. And it was true. The Second World War veterans came back and they, we have a national monument, but it's, uh, it's directly linked to the Great War. There's 22 figures passing through an arch. They're all in uniform. And the veterans came back and they wanted their own separate memorial and the government of the day turned them down. And they, and they came back again 10 years later, and there was another fight, and they were turned down. So that's the, that's the frustrating part that I felt. And I think the good news is that in the last 25 years, there has been a remaking, a re-engagement with this uh, complicated, contested history, and that Canadians have begun to pay more attention to the past. Although, sadly... We have 1.1 million. We had 1.1 million veterans. We're down to fewer than 30,000 now. It is, yeah. It's it's a it's a sad thing to see that generation go. I mean, Tim, just on on Canada's contribution, were there any areas in which Canada con contributed an outsized amount, or or was it like adding 20% to to British and Imperial armies, you know, across the board, 20, you know, sort of Lancaster bombers, Spitfire pilots, whatever it might be, or were there certain things that Canadians did really well and and were asked to contribute more of? 
Well, I, I think um, it's a great question. And I think often uh, ca- Canadians and British fought together almost to up our side against the American weight and presence. And, and that seems quite obvious. Uh, I think Canada's contribution to the Battle of the Atlantic is absolutely crucial to understanding the victory there and how we define victory. And victory is not in the defeating of the U-boats, of course. It is in getting the 25,000 vessels across the Atlantic, which I think is the number, uh, to carrying the crucial war supplies. Uh, Canada had its own bomber command group, uh, six group, which was engaged in uh, the massive uh, attacks uh, on German cities. And that has been controversial as well. As we know, I talk about that controversy in the book. Um, less about the Canadian role there, but more in just the concept of bombing, which has become a focal point for some to question the the uh, good nature of the war. And of course, it was uh, about the only means the Allies had to strike back against Germany up until about the midpoint of the war. And I guess First Canadian Army was Canada's major contribution. About um, at one point, uh, the army commander, Harry Creer, commanded about 460,000 British, American, Canadian and other allied forces and always fighting uh, with the British. Um, And I think the new scholarship that I have written and others make it quite clear if we think of just one uh, one particular point, the Battle of Normandy, where the British and the Canadians were drawing the best and most powerful German armored divisions to them to allow the Americans to break out, for instance, with Operation Cobra that Canada uh, did really play a key role. I I think the the key caveat here that in the book, I'm not arguing that it should only be Canada's story. Uh, I'm not even arguing that Canada's story needs to supplant the British or the American story. That's just not the case. Canada contributed mightily to victory, and yet there were other larger armies and, and navies and air forces. And yet to ignore it entirely is both wrong uh, and bad, I would suggest, and uh, bad in a sense where we have ignored our own stories and, and contributions, where we have not done the hard work of presenting the history. And I think, as you know, history is tough work. We live in a modern age, a di- digital age, an age of instant gratification. It's tough to stop and to sit and reflect upon the past, but I believe that there are lessons here to guide us forward through difficult times. And at the very least, in the case of this story of Canada's role in the Second World War, this is a a moment to be both proud of and to feel great sorrow and grief at the loss, but to see how Canada contributed to what I have written and called the necessary war, a war that had to be won, an enemy that had to be defeated, and one in which Canada did its part. Tim, last question. Uh, how how do you think you mentioned prosperity? Are there any other ways in which the war did change Canada? Yeah, I th- I think the Second War fundamentally changes Canada, and I perhaps the most important way. Well, there's a number is that Canada becomes much more uh, urbanized, and so the wartime production, of which more than three million Canadians were involved in wartime production, draws in Canadians um, from rural areas, and and up until the 1941 census, our census is every ten years. Canada was considered still a rural country. So the war fundamentally changes that. It also it also uh, divides Canada in a way where, uh, because Britain is largely bankrupted by the war, that we, we turn to the Americans. Um, I think the Canadian heart remains with the British Empire or Commonwealth for at least another 25 to 30 years. But there will be changes that we never come back from in terms of finance and, and really becoming a North American nation. There are other changes, but the, the other one I'll focus on, I think, is 
the war, I think like in Britain, saw massive state intervention in the lives of Canadians to win this very necessary war. And after the war, there was a peace dividend of sorts in the form of a stronger social security net to care for Canadians. And that may be its greatest legacy in that uh, the, the government inter intervention in the lives of Canadians fundamentally changes the nature of the country. And I suppose as a final thought, I think of the one million veterans. We had 1.1 million in uniform, 45,000 Canadians were killed in the war, 55,000 wounded badly. And they would move forward throughout the 20th century, building up the Canadian uh, Canadian society, building up the economy. Um, the prosperity of the 20th century is in no small part to the veterans and their families. And that alone, I think, requires us to think about this war as a crucial event in the uh, unfinished project that is Canada. Well, it's um, it's an honor to be part of that, a small part of that unfinished project, and and you're a big part because you're telling you're the you're the man telling it about its past, and shaping its future. Tim, um, very good luck with the book. Tell us what it's called one more time. It's called The Fight for History: Seventy Five Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. And thanks very much, Dan, for having me on the show. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.